Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Have you had a great Thanksgiving? If you have a Bible, you can meet me in 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians is where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles on the connection table in the back. Feel free to take that, borrow it, take it for good, uh, whatever you need. Uh, this week, this Sunday, it's kind of an in-betweener type of a week. Last week, Gabe Lewis, one of our elders, set our hearts, our minds on Thanksgiving, on being thankful in all circumstances and specifically to whom we are thankful. And then next week, Pastor Matt will start leading us through the Advent season as we in, uh, anticipate celebrating uh, the incarnation and, and the coming of Christ and all those things. And so this week, honestly, uh, I just, I've been reading through 1 Corinthians in my own time with the Lord. And so I picked a passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And so that's why we are here today, but hopefully we hear from God through his word. Um, in, in life and in nature, there are spaces where objects, people's ideas can be um, kind of existing together. They can coexist with one another. If you look out in nature, you can see that there's plants that grow and there's a diversity of plants that grow in the same area. And amongst those plants, there's animals that, that, that thrive when they're all operating and functioning in the same sphere. They have this ecosystem. Everything works together. It fits together like a puzzle and it's all good. Everyone's happy. There's other spaces and spheres in life where there's kind of this diametric opposition where there's not coexistence, it's, it's, there's mutually exclusive ideas and people and places and, and results where it's, it's not they all fit together. Rather, they are, are one of two ways. It's not a, a both and, it's an either or. I think one space that we can see that was this past weekend with college football. I am a college fan. I'm not a professional guy. I love college football. I'm from a state that loves college sports. And uh, this past weekend was rivalry week. And because I'm a good Christian, I'm a great Christian, I'm the best Christian that I know. And because of that, I love rivalry week because what you see is two groups of people who disdain and hate and loathe and have animosity towards one another because of how 20-year-olds perform at a game. And I think we need more of that in society. I say, let's ramp it up. Rivalry week over everything. And I, I, I love it. But uh, what you see in that is that you can't have someone who's both a Michigan fan and an Ohio State fan. Right? You can't be Florida and Florida State. You can't be Alabama and Auburn. I got to experience this Personally, when I went to an Alabama game about a decade ago, uh, it's a non-conference game, and I needed to buy an Alabama shirt before walking into Bryant-Denny Stadium. And I go to a store that's called Bama Fever Tiger Pride. And the storefront, it has two entrances, an Alabama entrance and an Auburn entrance. When you walk in those storefronts, there's a, an Alabama side and an Auburn side. When you pay, there's an Alabama cash register there's an Auburn cash register. You don't even want your money to touch after you've made your merchandise purchase. It's, a, you know, again, completely opposite. It's one or the other. It, it can't be both and. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is what we see is Paul starts to present the gospel. And specifically an element of the gospel, the, the, the idea of the cross as falling in that latter category. The way that people view the cross is not a both-and type of a setup. The way we think about it and the way we process the world, and specifically the cross, is in an either-or category. And the way that we view the cross reveals things about us. 
And so we're going to pick up in verse 18 this morning of Corinthians chapter 1. Before I start reading some quick context to the book, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And the way that he handles and approaches the church in Corinth is a little different than the way that we talk and communicate today. The way that you and I communicate today is filled with euphemisms. We, things, we say things politely and kindly so that it's not harsh. It doesn't cut through to us. And so when we look at our bank account, we're not poor. We're economically disadvantaged, right? We, our, our car that we bought wasn't used. It was pre-owned, right? You're not a liar. You're creative with the truth. We even do it so much that it extends to people that we don't want to see anymore. We break up with people by saying we're in different places. We're on different paths. You deserve better. It's not you. It's me. Uh, and we do all this to, to make it palatable, to make it easy. That's not how Paul writes to the church at Corinth. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he essentially gets down, uh, crouches down, makes eye contact, and he's like, you're the problem. Right? He, he's, he's very blunt. He's blunt in his writing. He says, he says, you are the problem. And the first problem that he identifies within the book of 1 Corinthians is that there have been divisions that are creeping into the church. And so the church is starting to be divided at large, and they're divided over what teachers they're following. And so they're claiming, well, I follow Apollos or Paul or Peter or whoever else. And depending on who they follow, uh, it's, it's creating these, these fractions, these fissures in the church. And, and Paul's like, that's not, not what, the way it's meant to be. Right? We're, we're not aligning under teachers. We're aligning under the gospel. We're aligning under a gospel message that doesn't need the eloquence or the wisdom of human teachers. We align under a gospel that stands on its own. It's the gospel that should be proclaimed above all else. And then he starts digging in a little bit deeper of, into this idea of the gospel and the cross. So picking back up in verse 18, Paul writes, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in our text this morning, I'm going to pull out three ideas, uh, three ideas in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first one is this. <clears throat> that the cross only has two perspectives. The cross only has two perspectives. There are only two ways to look at it. As Paul is saying, we're aligning under this umbrella of the gospel. He then says, well, this gospel is the word of the cross, and there are two outcomes based on how you view this cross. And so what is the message of the cross, the word of the cross? Paul is highlighting this symbol of a cross to, to be the, the marker by, by which people think about Christianity, by, by which people think about faith, which is a, a baffling idea that we've kind of lost the scandalous nature of that 
in, in the 21st century. If we, if we go back in time, if we go back 2,000 years, what, we're, what they're saying is that we're identifying under a cross, we're, we're identifying our faith, our religion, our pursuit under a symbol of torture. We're, we're identifying ourselves under something that's used and meant for criminals. We're identifying ourselves under something that's a means of death. To put in our context, it's, it's like saying if we're, we're going to start a movement and we're going we're gonna to be the, the message of the firing squad, right? Where a ton of people shoot you and your body is pierced with bullets into death. The, the message of the electric chair, chair where uh, electricity is pulsed through your body until you die. The message of lethal injection where drugs go in your vein until your body stops working, right? He, he, he's using a symbol or an emblem that doesn't actually make sense. It's not something that people would typically want to fall under or identify with. And he had choices, right? But he, he chose the cross. He didn't choose the resurrection. He didn't choose the ascension to be what he communicated to the church in Corinth as being the, the foundational marker of the Christian faith and foundation, uh, foundation of the faith. He, he uses the cross, you see, that the power of the cross is what's chosen. It's chosen to a starting point of humility, not a starting point of glory. And he says, this is what our faith is about. This is where it all begins. Salvation, redemption, accomplishing the purposes of God. It falls under this idea of death and humiliation. It's, it's the cross, it's the death of Christ that takes the penalty and the, the punishment of our sin. It's, it's the cross which enables you and I to be imputed the righteousness of Christ. That, he, that God can look at us and see us as holy because of Christ's death and humiliation. But it's this sign, it's this symbol, it's this emblem that actually points to the moment in Jesus' life where he experiences the ultimate rejection of the people he came to save. It points to the moment in Christ's life where he was deserted by his disciples. It points to the, the, the moment in Christ's life where he looked most powerless. Be it out of death, out of supposed defeat, out of the, the thoughts of defeat is actually what God uses to work and do miraculous things to bring about the redemption of people. And so it's this message of the cross, this message of death and humiliation, of being a way of salvation that, that leads to two perspectives. And these two perspectives are not divided among demographics. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your tax bracket, your IQ, any of those things. What, what matters is your destination. He says, depending on where your soul is on a trajectory in terms of its destination is what determines how you view the cross. And so perspective one, he says, it is folly, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says the idea, the message of the cross, the gospel and salvation coming through death is foolishness to anyone who is not a believer, to anyone whose soul is perishing. And again, that sounds, uh, sounds harsh. That brings out the harshness in Paul's language because in our context, we would say, well, all believers aren't you know, saying it's foolish. They're just saying, that's good for you. It's just not for me. 
where everyone can have their own opinion. Like, I'm not saying you're a fool because you have this, or I'm not saying this, this idea is foolishness, but the reality is the gospel doesn't give us that option. If we're talking about eternal things, and eternal salvation coming through one person, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, if salvation is through that, and someone is not placing hope, trust, faith in that, the only option is it's, it's a yes or it's foolishness. Indifference, apathy, those aren't options in a response to the gospel message. It's truth or it's foolishness. So one is it's folly. Perspective two, though, is that it's power to those being saved. And the language Paul uses is a little different than what we would expect. If he's setting up two ideas, we would think him to use opposites. And we would think him to say, okay, it's, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's wisdom. That's not the word that he uses. He uses that it's power, the gospel, the, the cross, it's, it's power. It's, it's power to those who are under the cross, who are being saved. He kind of looks at this progressive aspect of salvation. Yes, we're, we're saved, and once you're saved, you're saved. But there's this, this idea of where when we live out our lives as believers, as we fall under the, the lordship of Christ, as we, as we fall under the cross of Christ and, and are uh, pursuing him, what, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's working in us to conform us more and more into the image of Christ as we're convicted of sin, as we, as we lay our sins before Jesus, as we, as we walk in repentance and confession and we pursue holiness, all those things. We're, we're being more and more saved in a sense and that we're being brought to our ultimate salvation in Jesus. All right, so, so once you're saved, you're saved, but there's this, this process of where you're looking more like Christ either until he returns or until you die and you're brought home to glory. And so for those being saved, it's power, and it's power because essentially for us who have been saved, we see that it's power because we've experienced the results. All right, it's not foolishness and wisdom. It's not knowledge of what the gospel gave me. What the gospel gave me is life transformation. He gave me new life. He gave me something different. He gave me a, a new way for everything. Right? It's power because it's effective. It's transformative. And, and for those who are being saved, we've experienced that goodness. And Paul says, I, I know this. I have confidence in how this is how God works in terms of foolishness and wisdom and power because this is the way that God has worked in the past. He, he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Man's perspectives on wisdom and folly have never been and never will be God's criteria for what is good and right and true. God works in his own ways. That's why he's God. And we see that his actions in the past are consistent with his actions in the present and will be in the future. And so as we, we think about these two perspectives of folly or power to the perishing or the saved, I think it caused us to consider the way that our, our view of the things of God reveals something about our soul. On a, on a salvific level, our, our view of the cross determines whether we're perishing or saved, but our view on the things of God at large are always going to point back to something in our soul, our, our view on how we think about God himself, right? His, his sovereignty, his grace, his love, his mercy, his justice, his jealousness, all of those things, our, our view of those things are revealing something about our soul. 
the, the way we think about and view the Christian life, uh, of living out the Christian life, living out a Christian worldview is going to reveal something about our soul. The way we think about and view Christian community, right? The gathering of believers, being in fellowship and community with other believers is going to reveal something about our heart and our soul. The way we think about the way that we serve the needs of others reveals something about our soul. The way we think about generosity and giving, it reveals something about our heart and our soul. And those examples aren't arbitrary. That's Actually, the examples, the criteria of covenant membership here at Wellspring, like to be, to be part of the body of Christ means that we think rightly about those things. And if we're thinking rightly about those things, then it's revealing that our, our soul is being tuned to the things of God. So we see there's, uh, there's two perspectives, only two perspectives on how we think about and view the cross. Second idea this morning, there are three categories of people who engage with the cross. So Paul Asano starts to set this up for a second and thinking about uh, just the reality of the world, world around him, about how God has worked through people and, and how he chooses to work before he, he really jumps into these categories. But he, he begins by identifying just the deficiencies in humanity, you know, the, the way that humanity at large is deficient in their understanding and pursuit of things. He gives, gives us a few rhetorical questions, starting in verse 20. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So he asks these questions about who, from a worldly perspective, would be the most brilliant, the brightest, the experts, the professionals. He uses the wise, and given his initial context, it would be the the Greek sophists, those who have spent their life trying to figure out how life works best. He identifies scribes, those from a Jewish background who would know the law and be teachers. He identifies debaters, so philosophers who would be in the public square and, and, and gather a following from their ability to debate and speak in a public way. And then he adds a, a clause, debater of this age. This idea that the wise of this age, the scribe of this age, the debater of this age. So what Paul's doing here is he's not diminishing the use of someone's mind or rhetoric or anything like that. He's not diminishing those who are professionals or teachers or anything like that. He's, he's actually calling out those who have limited their wisdom, their understanding, their knowledge, their teachings to, to the confines of a, a worldly consideration. When I look at the world through a lens absent of God, when I, when I look at it from a humanist perspective of just what is man, how good is man, how good can man become, what can man accomplish apart from God is what he's calling out. And then the cross is put in opposition to that. But he says, look at all these people. And he says, where are they? What has come about from them? What have they accomplished? So there's deficiencies in humanity. And when he considers how God works, he second notify, notices that you know, God has already made the wisdom of the world foolish. His last rhetorical question in verse 20. says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the, the wise, the scribes, the debaters, they're, they're all trying to figure out how to answer life's questions. 
They're all trying to give us responses based on the world around us of, of how to live and what is good and what is right and what is true and how to have meaning. But when you look at each of these people, when you look at each of these professions apart from God, they can't deal with the depths of the human heart. It doesn't matter how wise you are, how smart you are, how great you are with words. None of those people can give an answer to deal with sin. None of those people can give an answer to deal with guilt. None of those people can give an answer to deal with shame. None of those people can answer the, the longings, the desires of the human heart. Right? As Blaise Pascal talks about, you know, the, the God-sized hole that only he can fill. Now, none of those categories offer us that answer. And so God has already made foolish the wisdom of the wise. And then finally, the way that the world works and what he kind of gives us initial consideration is because God works in ways that are different than the wisdom of the wise, what we understand is that God determines the way that he accomplishes his purposes. God's not looking to us to try and figure out what's best Right? God is the one who determines how he interacts with us. God determines the avenues, uh, the avenue through which people come to know him. Right? It says, what is it, verse 21, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know him through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world came to a relationship with God, not through man's wisdom, but actually against man's expectations. Saving knowledge in a relationship with God comes through an activity that's perceived as foolishness. Believing that you can have life through someone's death. He he conforms to no one. And so it's not based on our wisdom, our capacity. It's not based on our education, our business acumen, our work ethic, our emotional intelligence. None of that matters and none of that brings you to the Lord. It's not about the wisdom of humanity. One commentator, he says, he says, a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And if this this constitutes the worship of the creature and not the creator. It's It's not about the wisdom or giftedness of the world. It's about the way that God has chosen to call people to himself. And so if that's how God works, then he says there's three categories of people. But the first one, he identifies as the Jews, those who are demanding signs. The, the broader label we can give to this is, is those who are coming to faith um, or would come to faith if God conforms himself to the, man, to the demands of people. If God acts in the way that I expect or I want him to act, then I will walk into salvation. If God conforms himself to my demands, that's what I'm looking for. That's all I need. And so for the original context of Jews, they're expecting a certain type of Messiah. They're expecting a certain type of apocalyptic intervention. They're expecting some type of a restoration to Israel. None of which come. 
right? Because uh, salvation is, is not found in our ability to support our beliefs based on how God will reveal himself in empirical ways for us to have evidence of like, see, God answered that. God was there in that. And because of that time when I prayed and gave me that answer, then I, I know that he's real and I know that he's good. And so as God doesn't conform to our demands because God is God, the result is that it's a stumbling block. Right? When, when God doesn't meet our expectations of deliverance, it becomes a, a stumbling block. And so we just see the defeat and the death of the cross, nothing else. Second group of people identified as the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, those who seek wisdom. The idea that we can put on this one is it's uh, people who expect God to privilege what the world holds with regard. And people who expect God to privilege what the world holds with regard. They say, when I, when I look around me, there's a certain way to process and understand the workings of the world. And so God should also function in the way that I look and I see and the way that my rationality and my logic leads me to believe. God should also work in those exact same ways. Leads to that dangerous statement of people thinking, if I were God, I would blank. Or why wouldn't God blank? And to those people who expect God to privilege what we privilege... As humans, we, we look at the cross and we say, dying and dying to self is, is foolishness. Right? It's folly. It's, it's the epitome of nonsense that God would die and expect us to die to self as well. And, and what we see is, is these ideas of, of demanding signs, of seeking wisdom, even for believers, start to kind of creep back into our thought processes in life. They creep back in on you and I as the church as we misplace significance in certain areas. Again, like we, we lay out our prayers before God as, a, as an avenue to belief. Like, okay, I'm going to pray this, and if God answers this prayer, then, then like I'll really, really believe. Like I, I'll really, really trust him. Or even put God to the test in the other way. If, if God doesn't answer this prayer, then I'm done. I don't believe. We, we put God to the test in demanding signs of even when, when God doesn't work in the ways that we want, that we just become bitter about it. Like, God's not working the way that I want him to. And so I'm just going to live and entrench myself in a heart of bitterness. Or on the flip side of, of seeking the wise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to value what the world values. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the people who are most gifted, who have the most success, rather than those who are most Christ-like and are most holy. I'm going to follow people that, that can you know, bring me into spaces of status. I follow those who have status and can bring me along as well. That's what I value. And it's like, yeah, yeah, the gospel, but also status. And so it, it creeps in of where we, we, we demand signs without saying we're demanding signs, where we value the wisdom of the world, even though we're, we're not explicitly saying we value the things the world values most. But then there's a third category of people. 
The third category is those who proclaim Christ crucified. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. The the commonality between those who just demand signs and just seek wisdom is that they fall into that category of people who are perishing, but the ones who proclaim Christ crucified are the ones who are being saved. They are the ones who who have made it a commitment to, to speak the gospel, to allow God's wisdom to be God's wisdom on his own terms. And to the world, it doesn't make sense. There's not a category for this in the processing of the world of human wisdom. I think about it in terms of the science behind staring. And so if you have little kids or have been around little kids, there's, there's moments where they stare and they stare and they stare and then you kick them and then they stop staring. And what's happening is, Right? They've seen the person with the mohawk or the green hair or 25 piercings or is seven foot six or is 500 pounds or, or whatever seems out of norm from their convention. Not that any of those things are wrong, but they see someone that doesn't match their construct. And so they stare because they're like, how do I place a category around this? Like, I, I don't know how to compute what I'm seeing. And what the gospel says is that apart from God, Apart from being called by God, there's no category in the world that lets us understand the cross and preach Christ crucified as what it is, as salvation, as redemption, as good. But yet, what we see under the cross is that it brings a result of transformation. It brings a result of power and wisdom because those who have been called by God all right verse 24 but those who are called those who have been called by God who are able to have that categorization are able to to experience salvation are able to walk in power and wisdom and they're doing it in such a way that it's all dependent on God it's all dependent on Jesus. There, there's no room or basis for boasting. It's not your wisdom. It's not anything else that brought you to that point. And it's unique for us as Americans, uh, but this makes sense in the church in Corinth. Because the church in Corinth, why well, I'd emphasize this, the church in Corinth, they, they would be a self-sufficient society in what they valued. They would be uh, a society that values human performance. That's not us as Americans, right? Us as Americans will never say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Us as Americans will never say, make your own way. That's dumb. Us as Americans would never worry about placing identity in the businesses we've started or the possessions in the portfolio that we own. We would never, as Americans, we would never put identity in the network that we have or the status we have or the control that we have or the people around us or the family that we've raised. We would never, us as Americans, we would never put our identity in the successes of our kids' football or volleyball or basketball or baseball teams, right? We, we would never do that. And to paraphrase the cinematic masterpiece of Tommy Boy, I hope you're catching my sarcasm because I'm laying it on pretty thick, right? That's, that's how we function. That's how we tend to operate. But that's not how we're called into salvation. It's not 
about ourselves. It's not our self-sufficiency. It's not our human performance. It's, it's the cross. And the cross of Christ is power. We know that it's power because we've experienced life transformation. The, the cross of Christ is wisdom. Because when we've been called by God, we see the depths of our sinfulness and depravity, and we see that this is the only way in which God can save humanity. Right? Death on our behalf. And the cross, it's, it's about Jesus, not us. And we see that in God's wisdom and power, it, it rests in something completely different than the expectations and the way that the world works. It rests in the merits of someone else and not us. That's the word and the message of the cross. And then finally, our third point. So there's two perspectives. There's three types of people, but at the end of the day, the cross brings glory to one God. Uh, all of this, all, all that we consider of the cross, of the way God works, of salvation. It's an avenue through which he receives glory. It's an avenue through which we as humans can look at the workings of God and, and be amazed by who he is. Verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's meant to bring us to a, a space where we look at the gospel and we say, man, the foolishness of God. When I, when I look at something that God has done and I don't understand why, at the end of the day I can see, man, that, that's wiser and more significant than the most profound thoughts that man could have or create. When I look at the workings of God, the, the weaknesses of God are stronger and the strength of men. When I, when I look at the way that God works, I'm like, man, that, that seems weak. There doesn't seem to be substance there. Yet, when I understand, I see that there's a, a power and a capacity and an ability that exceeds anything man could accomplish apart from God. It's all, it's all meant to lead us to a point where we are in awe and amazed by who God is because he is God and we are not and he is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our giving of glory. Let's pray. God, this morning we thank you for the cross. Thank you that through Christ's death, that you made a way for us to have a relationship with you, that you, you answered the penalty of our sin, and that, that through his life, through his righteousness, through his resurrection, through his ascension, that, that we, can, we can be called blameless, we can be called righteous, we can be called holy. And so, God, let us be brought to a point of, of humility, not to hope in the things of this world or, or, or limit your actions and activities to what we think is rational or right or good, God, but, but lead us in a space to see how big and magnificent and how glorious you are and to be in awe of you. 
But God, we, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the spirit who works in us and dwells with us and, and, and lets us walk towards life and light. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.